0: Garth Greenwell's debut novel takes place in Bulgaria and tells the story of an affair between Mitko, a broken-toothed hustler, um, and the mysterious unnamed narrator, who we'll call Garth. No, we won't. We won't do it. We won't do that. We won't do that. We won't do that. We won't do that. We won't. We won't. We won't. I love you. Don't. He's getting hot. It's already a New York Times bestseller. I've reread it three times. Um, Garth is a poet and educator and a fellow of the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, that hallmark of quality. He's here tonight for his UK premiere. Please welcome the man who's done more than the wombos to put Bulgaria on the map, <laughs> Garth Greenwell. And we're the same height, how exciting is this? So excited about this.
1: Is that okay?
0: Yeah. Okay. It's amazing that we fit. It is. It's very unusual. It's, one, it's so rare. Very rare. We can steal each other's clothes. Soulmates. You've got, this, you've got the nice book. I've got the, I've got the proof. Oh, That's very lovely. I won't give it to you. I know. It's the,
1: f- it's the very first. Is it really? It, it really is. It has a number one in it. Oh, my God. I know. That's what you
0: get when you're published by Picador. Fancy. Well... Um, so, would you want to read a couple of little bits first and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk?
1: Well, I thought I might just read one bit. Okay. Um, and it's from the third section of the novel, which is where this character Mitko reappears after a period of two years where he and the narrator have been separated. And the narrator has really tried to make a very clean break with Mitko. And Mitko reappears and tells the narrator that he's tested positive for syphilis and that he's been told that he's had it for a long time, that the narrator should be tested. And so um, the bit I'm going to read, and the narrator also gives Mitko some money so that he can get treatment. And I'm going to read from the second time that Mitko appears. And I should also say that um, in the two years that they've been separated, the narrator's life has changed, and he's found a more conventional relationship with a man he calls R, who lives in Lisbon. And he's told Mitko about R, just to make clear that he's not, he's not looking to reinitiate anything with R. So he doesn't, invite R, he doesn't invite Mitko into his apartment. Instead, they go to a McDonald's. This is an actual McDonald's in Mladost, Sofia. I expected Mitko to load his tray with far more than he could eat, as he usually did when I bought him food, but he only ordered a sandwich, fries, and at my insistence, a milkshake, which he had never had before, he said. It had never occurred to him to try one. Mitko grabbed the milkshake as soon as the server set it down and put the straw to his lips, and it was a joy to see his eyes widen with pleasure when he tasted it. We walked with his tray to the most secluded corner, as far as we could get from the other diners, a few couples, one large group of friends. To the right of our table, there was a closed glass door leading to a room for children's parties. The room was dark now and the door was locked, as Mitko found when he tried to turn the knob, but we could make out bits of the brightly colored interior, the plastic cubes for climbing, plush seats in the shapes of cartoon characters. It disquieted me somehow. It was a whole world molded for a kind of carelessness I doubt it had anything to do with childhood, a carelessness I couldn't remember ever feeling. Mikko sat and tore into his food, not pausing until almost all of it was gone. Then he looked up, almost embarrassed, as if for a moment he had forgotten I was there. Kaksi, he said, smiling a little, and I said I was fine, a little tired maybe, but all right. It's late, he said apologetically. I know you go to bed early. I wouldn't have rung the bell except I saw your light. This was untrue, of course, as we both knew, and maybe I spoke a little brusquely when I said, why did you come to see me? Do you need something? But he brushed this aside, asking me instead if I had been to the clinic yet, if I had been tested, yes, I said. I have to go again for a second test tomorrow, but the first was positive. I know I have it. Miko looked at me silently, and then, oh, he said, I'm sorry, and, he st- and it sounded genuine, more so as he said it again, I'm sorry, but I dismissed this, waving my hand a little in the air, I have it from you, I said, probably my friend has it from me, and you got it from someone, too, it's an infection, I said, there's no guilt, you don't need to be sorry. Mikko looked surprised at this, that I had passed up an advantage, but he nodded in acknowledgment nonetheless. And you, I said, are you better? Have the pills helped? But he jerked his head, the single vertical motion that means no here, like a door slamming shut. No, they haven't helped. And gesturing to his crotch, I still have the same problem, he said, using the word he had used before, as if for a leaking faucet. I went to the clinic again, he said. I have to get the injections. The pills aren't strong enough. It's dangerous for me, he went on. The medicine is very strong, and I already have problems with my liver. I told you that. I nodded, remembering what he had said about his weeks in the hospital in Varna, which he had spoken of with more horror than of prison. So it's dangerous, he went on, but I have to do it to get rid of this other thing. Sujuliavam, I said, repeating his word, I'm sorry. "'And it's expensive,' he went on, looking up at me, to make the most of my sympathy. "'The shots cost much more than the pills. hundred leva,' he said, and then quickly added, "'But that's for all three shots. After that, I'm done.' He hadn't asked me for anything, but of course the request was there. It seemed cruel to make him say it. "'Dubre,' I said. "'Okay, so I'll help you. You don't need to worry.'" Some tension I hadn't quite registered in him released as he smiled, and I realized that he had been worried, unsure whether my feeling for him would stretch so far. Thank you, he said, and then you are a true friend, Istinski Priato. and I was disconcerted by the pleasure I took in his saying it. Mikko turned his attention back to the food on his tray. What was left of it determined not to let anything go to waste. Wanting to get away from him for a moment, I pushed my chair back and stood, saying I would be right back. The bathroom was near the table we had chosen, just across from the locked playroom that seemed to me so oddly baleful. It was small, with a single stall and urinal and a sink mounted against the wall. I stepped up to the urinal, fishing myself out for form's sake, but feeling no urgency to piss. I closed my eyes instead and breathed deeply, grateful to be free from Mitko and what he had made me feel, that pleasure that was too sharp. I would wonder, later, whether that feeling itself was an invitation for what happened next, whether I allowed Mitko to see it, but I don't think so. I think I was surprised when I heard or felt the door open, felt more than heard, I think, the tiny shift in pressure, the resistance of the air collapsing like my own resistance which was swept aside when I felt the sudden warmth of Mitko behind me. I had known it was he when the door opened. It never occurred to me it could be anyone else, as it never occurred to me to tell him to stop, or occurred with so little force it was lost in the sweep of my excitement. There wasn't a lock on the door. We could have been interrupted, and maybe the risk heightened my pleasure as Mitko pressed his whole length against me, placing his feet beside mine and leaning his torso into my spine, his breath hot on my neck. This was reality. I felt with a strange relief, this was where I belonged. And I thought of R, though it shames me to recall it, as though our life together, open and sunlit and lasting, were entirely without substance. I felt it disappear, simply disappear, like a flammable shadow, and part of me was glad to feel it go. Mitko's mouth pressed at my neck and his hands reached beneath my shirt, touching me as he knew I liked to be touched, remembering exactly though so much time had passed. He pressed into me harder, forcing me forward, and I braced myself with one hand against the tile while I felt him grind against me. He wanted me to know that he was hard, that he wanted it too, that he was ready to do again what we had done so often. With my other hand, I jerked myself off. I had gotten hard at his first touch, at the first intimation of that touch, and I was swept forward by a single, in a single motion, quick and restless, swept forward by Mitko, the weight of him against me and his hands, and then suddenly his teeth at my neck, until I came with a pleasure I hadn't known in months that maybe I had never known with R. For a moment, as I let my head fall until my forehead lay next to my arm before I could feel anything else, I was grateful to Mitko. He stayed with me a little longer, wrapping his arms around me more tightly as if he were holding me in place, and then there was a last pressure of his lips on my neck, and he was gone. I left my head resting on the tile, taking deep breaths, feeling my organism settle with a sensation like the clicking of metal as it cools. Without opening my eyes, I pulled on the lever to flush the urinal, then again, and then a third time. I was used to feeling regret in such moments, of course. Sometimes I thought it was part of my pleasure, like a bitter taste making a flavor more rich. But I, felt something, but I felt something stronger now. I was sick, I was infectious, and children came here, I thought, remembering that locked room as I flushed the urinal again and again. Then I stepped into the stall and unwound a mass of toilet paper, which I wetted the sink and used to wipe down the lever I had just touched as well as the wall where I had braced myself, though there could be no danger there, and then I began wiping down the porcelain itself, inside and out. I knew the whole performance was excessive. I was wiping surfaces unlikely ever to be touched, but I kept at it as the paper dissolved in my hand. Finally, I carried the wet mass to the toilet, and then I stood for some time at the sink washing my hands. Only then did I let myself think of R, as I looked at myself in the mirror, my face still flushed. He loves you, I said, whispering the words out loud. And then I said it again. I saw that Miko had cleared the table when I stepped out of the bathroom. Only the paper cup of the milkshake was left and he leaned over it with his elbows planted on the table, looking at me with his head quizzically cocked. He looked like a child, I thought, as I had so often before. He watched me with a kind of guarded expectancy, as if he knew he hadn't acted strictly as he should, but thought he had been so charming he could still expect a reward. When he asked me with, if everything was all right, I said, yes, yes, everything was fine. Malkus me ludichki," he said then, his face breaking into its smile, a real smile, full voltage. We're a little crazy. And I had to agree that this was so. Thank you.
0: God, you read beautifully. No. You do. You do. Um, I think oh, th- th- this book is, is so short, um, and yet, so not slight, and it contains so much that I did really have to reread it three times because I felt like there was so much that I was missing, and I kept sort of imagining myself on different sides of that of that table and in that, and in, in, that, in that bathroom and in lots of the quite squalid places that actually um that you take us to Metko meets the unnamed narrator in a bathroom at the beginning. And that was published as a as, as short, as a novella or a short story? As a novella, yes. Okay. And did you know when you wrote it as a novella that you were then going to expand into the novel?
1: Not even a little, no. Um, the, the first section of the novel was the first piece of fiction I'd ever written. Um, up to that point, I'd only ever written poetry. And um, at no point writing it did I have any idea yeah what it was going to be. And when I finished, the first section tells the sort of arc, what, what is kind of a complete arc of the relationship. And when I finished it, I thought, it was done. Mm. And the second section um, took
0: me very much by surprise. Yeah. I mean, this, the, it's a paragraph of doom. I mean, it's a gigantic, <laughs> unassailable, you know, yeah. of a paragraph. Um, how, how many pages does it go on for Yeah, that? so it's a 41-page block paragraph, the okay.
1: second section. Yeah.
0: Okay. And that honestly sounds so hateful, doesn't it? Um, and, and it really makes perfect sense, when you, particularly when you understand that, that you're a poet. I mean, hmm. it's, it's, it's an experience hmm. um, to, to read it. And I wonder what it was like to read because it's very fluid.
1: I mean, it was it was terrifying to write. Um, it was the scariest thing I've ever written. Um, the middle section tells the story of the narrator's childhood in Kentucky in the early 90s. And really, I mean, what made me write the novel, I think, and what made being in Bulgaria, um, the spark for the novel was the fact that, you know, I was in this place that was very strange. I would never been to Eastern Europe before. I don't think, until I started researching the school where I ended up teaching for four years, I don't think I could have found Bulgaria on a map. Mm. Shameful to say, it's right above Greece. Um, and, you know, I Why found- did you choose Bulgaria? I didn't choose, really. Um, I had, I, I was offered, a, well, I was offered one choice between a very ritzy school in the Swiss Alps where I would have taught extremely rich kids. Yeah. And this school, the American College of Sofia in Sofia, Bulgaria, which was founded in 1865 by missionaries with a mission to, stud, to teach Bulgarian kids. And kids come from all over the country. They yeah. take an exam. And you know, one of the things that happened was that I was in this place that was so strange and where I didn't speak the language and I didn't understand the mores when I arrived. And then maybe my third week into the country, I found this bathroom beneath the National Palace of Culture in Sofia. I wasn't looking for it, I found it by accident. But the minute I started going down the stairs to it, I knew what it was. And when I, you know, interacted with the men who were cruising there, it was like I I found that I was entirely fluent. I understood what was happening. And that experience of being reminded in Bulgaria in 2009 of the gay men in the gay communities I first found in Kentucky when I was 14 in the early 90s, and of having these men describe their lives as though there were the same horizon of possibility drawn across them as the first gay men I met in Kentucky, and then to have my students, because I was the only openly gay person almost any of my students had ever met, to have them come and tell me their stories, and for those stories to so much be my story I think that that was what really made this novel happen
0: and i think i think that i think it's the great specificity of it and it is a cliche but it is true the great specificity is what makes it universal i mean i've never read a book set in bulgaria and i, I probably couldn't have found it on a map and but but suddenly i can i can visualize barna the, you know at the abandoned seaside town and i can see the blo- the blocks of flats yeah. and sofia and you it, it's it's not just that it's a new place it's not just that it's novelty um, um but but it, but it is a little bit of that, but, 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 it, but you take it there and you make it, it feels completely believable. Um, I just want to talk a bit more about what you said about when you were 14 and cruising and you used the word community and it's not a word that's used very often in the context of cruising. So is, was that the way that you found other people like you? Because the, the narrator also in, in part two talks about uh, feeling, feeling apart, feeling, feeling, feeling different.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, these places, these bathrooms and parks where men go to find each other for sex, I mean, they've been central to my life since I was 14. They were the places where I came into an understanding of myself as a gay man. And they were also the first places where I experienced queerness as not simply a source of shame, but of joy. Mm. And it does seem to me that these are places that are derided, that are despised by both straight culture and by a certain narrative of queer culture that has come to be the dominant narrative. You know, I mean, this extraordinary victory that queer people have won in certain parts of the world that has given us a set of rights and responsibilities that allows us to participate in the full life of citizenship that includes marriage is extraordinary. It's necessary. Mm. It was a battle that I supported and it's a battle that I'm so glad we won and it's also a battle that came at a great cost. And that cost was the packaging of queer lives in a way that allowed those lives or that forced those lives to be translated into value that could be understood by people who hate queer people, Mm. who are disgusted by queer people. And what that meant is that there is a single model of queer life that's presented as legitimate in that narrative. A homonormative, A homonormative model. I mean, a model that is about two adults in a monogamous relationship that is centered on the raising of a child. That's a beautiful model for human life. It's a necessary model for human life, and it's a model that needs to be available to queer people. It is not the only legitimate model of queer life. Mm. And it seems to me that, you know, much of what is potentially radical in queer life, it seems to me, inheres in these places that have been scrubbed from that narrative. Because one thing that happens in those places is that someone like the narrator of my book and Midco can meet. You know, we structure our lives in such a way that we almost never cross, you know, the the boundaries of the categories that organize those lives, categories of race and class. And these queer spaces have always been spaces that scramble those categories because, you know, One reason our culture is so terrified of desire is that that's what desire does. It scrambles those categories. It's one reason desire is dangerous. Mm. And it seems to me that, you know, any time you have face-to-face encounters across that kind of difference, you have the possibility for a kind of ethical spark that engages the entire gamut of ethical and emotional response. And that seems to me an extraordinarily radical thing that we should cherish. And you know, these communities are places of dignity as much as they are of shame. And I don't, you know, I think if we simply scrub them out of our consciousness, we we sacrifice too much. I think the National Trust is missing a trick.
0: Uh, I, I should say that the Savoy Hotel was the first in, in London to have bathrooms for every single room. Uh, previous to that, they shared uh, two or three or four But Anyway, so it's very appropriate uh, that you should be having this conversation. I was thinking about cruising as an analogue form of communication. And interesting that the character, uh, that the, the narrator goes from, from that... Kind of furtive finding of other people, the sensing, you know, there are other people out there to 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 the internet age and to yes. grinder and to yeah. being able to say, I am this, I want that, I don't want any of, of these other things. And he kind of rejects that and goes back to finding uh, th- those kind of analog um, analog spaces. And I wonder if you think that as we all become more digital, whether we're straight or gay, whatever kind of identity we have, if we're, if, we're, if there's a loss involved in in that too. I do think there's a loss. I do think there's a loss.
1: Because any time your response to another human being can be swipe left. You know, it yeah, seems yeah. to me that that is a kind of degraded form of human interaction. You know, it's interesting though, because I don't think these cruising spaces are disappearing and I think they're finding a life side by side with this digital culture that's fascinating. So if you go to one of the video stores on 8th Ave in Manhattan, you will see people cruising in this old-fashioned way while they are on their phones you know looking at grinder i mean it's fascinating to see i mean you know and thinking about cruising as a form of communication to me i mean cruising was my first education in poetry i had no idea but cruising made me a poet because you know it is
0: it is a form of
1: communication wordless
0: sorry wordless communication like silent or or when you talk or both i think but yes largely largely wordless but also in the
1: sense that there is a kind of hidden there is an occult significance there is a set of codes you have to learn how to read and you have to learn how to communicate in ways that are at once public and private so that Most people won't see them, but a few people will understand them for what they are. And if you understand them for what they are, then you have this sense, which is, for me, the sense of the lyric moment, which is when, you know, kind of the inchoate stuff of the world all of the sudden shudders into a significance you can read. And in cruising, you know, you carve out these intimacies from public spaces. I mean, all of Whitman's poems are about cruising. Hmm. All of Whitman's <laughs> poems are about walking through the they crowded streets. They said stre- that
0: to me at university. I wish they had. You I know, liked Whitman much more.
1: I mean, it's really true. He talks about walking through the crowded streets of Manhattan and finding the one person hmm. who, you know, with whom he can have this intimate encounter that even though it's fleeting, has an infinite value. And you know, that to me is the experience of, of cruising, of carving out these intimacies in this public space. That's what poetry does. It's a kind of public, private discourse. And that's cruising too.
0: Um, I was thinking about the character's motivation. You know, um, often you said he feels regret at the encounters that, that he's had. The encounters with Mikko, um, they are variously very sexy they are dangerous, they are, they are troubling, you know, you have a sense that almost anything, anything could happen. And I kept thinking, why, why, is, why is he going back and doing this? What yeah. you was know, what, what he doing? And I wasn't even sure that he did. Um, but then when we got to the bit about his relationship with his father, you wrote something that I recognised I'd never seen written down before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you talk about being a boy with your dad. And I remember this moment really clearly. And you see, when I was when the character says, when I was still young enough to touch and be touched by him. And there is a moment, isn't there, in the lives of men, not so much I think as women, but the lives of men where where we're supposed to stop touching.
1: I think that's right. And you know, I mean I think childhood, the narrator often finds himself looking at children with their parents. Yeah. And, and then in the second section, he remembers moments where he re- thinks he remembers or he wonders if he's imagining, but he remembers these moments where he could touch his father in this kind of intimacy. He says the phrase he uses, he says it's an, it's a, an, an intimacy confident of our love, confident of absolute possession. And it does seem to me that that's true for very young children. I mean, before you've it's even occurred to you to question the durability of your bond with your parents, before there's any kind of friction has entered into it. I mean, it does seem to me that that's the one moment in our lives when we're absolutely sure of what belongs to us, and that you know, kind of, the loss of that does leave a wound that you know we see, We spend the rest of our lives seeking to. And do you
0: think that's part of what's motivating the character? Do you think
1: that? Well, I mean, I think so. I mean, the character, you know, he does, he has this vision of a kind of intimacy, of a kind of connection with another human being that he seems incapable of in his actual life, but he believes it exists. Mm. And, you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, to be a queer person in, in Kentucky in the early 90s, or to be a queer person in Bulgaria today is to be taught one lesson about your life. And that lesson is that your life has no dignity and your life has no value. And one of the things, you know, we're at this very interesting moment for queer people where we have this kind of mainstream acceptance that is absolutely unimaginable 10 years ago. And there is a way in which I, as a queer person, as a queer person who spent the last 20 years involved in activism and steeped in the discourse of activism, I know that the lesson I was taught as a child is wrong. I can also never be the person never be a person who never learned that lesson. And so, you know, to be in this moment where you know, my character tries to tries to explain or tries to come to understand how he became someone for whom the satisfaction of desire is necessarily linked with the pain of exclusion. Mm. And in some way, I mean, what this relationship with Mitko offers him at the beginning, what the kind of structure of sex work offers him is that, is the satisfaction of desire and built into it a kind of of exclusion, Mm. saying, you can't have me really. You can have me for a moment, but you can't really have me. Mm. And I think that's safe for the narrator. But I mean, of course, these are two human beings and you know one of the things that i think we sometimes forget about when we talk about sex work whether we're talking about sex workers or johns is that both sides of that transaction remain human beings at every moment and therefore nothing is clean nothing is easy everything is messy and the narrator finds himself you know he finds all of his defenses broken
0: Feelings happen, they do, feelings happen. Um, You keep saying that the narrator, and I wasn't conscious of that when I was reading it, because you find all kinds of clever ways not to mention his name, but why don't you ever name him? And why are so many people reduced to their initials? Why are so many people reduced to to their initials? You've got R and K and G. Right, so I thought about
1: names a lot. I mean, the narrator isn't named for a couple of reasons. One is that we're told that when he first meets Mitko, Mitko can't say his name because his name is unpronounceable in Bulgarian. Um, The other, and it seemed to me, you know, he descends into this space and he's stripped of his name. And there was something I liked about that. There was something initiatory or ritualistic about that that I liked. And then the other reason the narrator doesn't have a name is because, I mean, obviously the book is playing with autobiography. I mean, all of the fact checkable information we have about the narrator is also fact-checkable information about me. I know. (laughs) And yet, you know, I do... He is the narrator, Hmm. you know, and it is fiction. And I like novels that blur the boundary between fact and fiction. And then in the whole book, only Mitko is named. Hmm. And he isn't named fully. Mitko is the diminutive for Demeter, which is the most common Bulgarian name, male name. And I wanted him to be the only person named, because in one sense, I think it makes him the most vivid character. I mean, a name is an investment, right? It's why we get upset when people don't remember our names. A name is an investment, and by naming a character, you give the reader something to invest in. And I want the reader to invest in Mikko. If the reader doesn't care about Mitko by the end of the book, I think the book has failed. And, you know, so in one sense, it's like a spotlight on him, which is a position of privilege to be in the spotlight. Mm. And it's also a position of vulnerability. It makes him exposed. And that seemed true to me, to kind of his position in, in the book and in the society as a whole. Okay.
0: Um, I'm going to take questions. And Sylvia, your hand is already up. How did you know I was about to do that? Sylvia, you can ask a question, and then I can take another question, and then Garth will be answering questions <laughs> in the interval. Go ahead. It's an interesting question. It's to do with the narrator and his sister, who goes to visit him. And his sister, he discovers uh, late at night, um, also has quite an interesting sex life. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. How do they have the same quirk? I mean,
1: you know, I mean, the the wonderful thing about the wonderful thing about its being a novel is that I I didn't have to research it. Um, <laughs> I mean, the he just you know, uh, well. It seemed right to me and it seemed like it allowed an exploration of the father and of the father figure because there's a way in which, I mean, this is a father who does not act well. And I wanted the father to be available through a perspective that is not merely the narrator's. And it did seem to me, you know, so the book is also interested in inheritance, Mm. and then how things are passed between people. And that, you know, that might be how love is passed between people. It might be how syphilis is passed between people. And it might be how certain kinds of psychic harm are passed between people. And, you know, one of the things, what what the sister's stories allow for the narrator, because she tells him things about his father that he hasn't known, that he didn't know, or that he's forgotten and it makes him recognize the extent to which he has a bond with his father that he cannot escape. That, you know, I mean, he has inherited from his father aspects of himself that he's saddled with. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, I, I hope that the book doesn't ever claim to make some kind of statement about you know, what happens to children who have a father like this? I don't, I, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that the book just explores this particular family unit. And that, you know, the other thing that it does to let the, the younger sister share some of the, you know, what the narrator says, he says, I had always thought of these as my own, you know, peculiar problem, as like my own inheritance. I think it opens up a kind of compassion in him for himself because he loves his sister. And I think that sort of seeing that she suffers some of the same compulsions he does, you know, allows him to see himself in a somewhat different way. And thank you so much for reading my book.
0: (laughs) Garth, did your father also not act well?
1: My father, um, when I was 14 years old, told me I wasn't his son. And kicked me out of the house, and told me that if um, told him that you know, if he knew I was going to be a faggot, I would never have been born. And I think um, I was much luckier than many many queer young people, even today in our age of enlightenment, in that I had a mother who, even though it took her a very long time to accept that her son was gay, she took me in, and she gave me a place to live. And you know, I think that when you're a child, you don't necessarily question the way your parents act. And it seems, you know, I think I carried for a long time, even, even as I sort of learned the language of activism and heard other people's stories and was shown other narratives of what queerness might mean, I think I carried a long time a sense that that reaction was inevitable or that in some way it was earned. Mm. And it was only when I became a high school teacher and I saw these 14-year-old kids, and I realized no 14-year-old can do anything that merits that response. You know, I think that was a, a powerful thing. So, um, you know, my father, I haven't spoken to my father for more than a decade.
0: Has he read your book? Do you know? Is there any communication?
1: I know he knows about the book, okay. but I don't know if he's read it. Um, do you care? You know, I would have said no. I would have said no. But I was just in Louisville, my hometown, and I read. And there was a man in the audience who looked familiar to me. And I couldn't place him, and he came up to speak to me after the event. And it turns out he was a partner in my father's law firm. And he worked with my father. And he said to me, you know Garth? I just want you to know that back then I know your father was proud of you because he told me so and I wanted to punch him in the face <laughs> like I couldn't believe it made me so angry that he thought that was an appropriate thing to say or that he thought that was something I would want or need to hear. And the very fact that I had such a violent response means, of course, I care. No matter what I do, I
0: will always be my father's son. We're gonna take a 30 minute break. Please join me in thanking Garth Greenwell for being incredible. See you in 30 minutes. Eat, drink, be happy.